Good morning. I'm Chris Jimerson, co-lead minister here at First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. My pronouns are he, him. Whether you're joining us online or here in the sanctuary, welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to a free and responsible search for truth, meaning, and beauty. Whoever you are, wherever you come from, Wherever you find yourself on your life's journey, whichever your pronouns, whomever you love, whether you walked in or rolled in or transported in through virtual space or television signal, you are welcome here. You belong here. We come from a long tradition of seeing a spark of the divine in every person And it's in that tradition, our living tradition, that I invite you to greet the holy among us this morning, either in the comments online or by turning to those around you here in person. Good morning. My name is A.J. Jaraska. My pronouns are they, them, and I'll be your lay leader this morning. Please join me in our words for lighting the chalice. This is the flame we hold in our hearts as we strive for justice for everyone. This is the light we shine upon systems of oppression until they are no more. This is the warmth that we share with one another as our struggle becomes our salvation. Our call to worship today is your darkness by Rainer, I, I got so nervous that I was going to say this wrong, Rainer Maria Rilke, translated by David White. Rainer Maria Rilke was an Austrian poet. This translation by David White um, uh, is by David White, who was an Anglo-Irish poet. You darkness from which I come, I love you more than all the fires that fence out the world. For the fire makes a circle for everyone so that no one sees you anymore. But darkness holds it all, the shape and the flame, the animal and myself, how it holds them, all powers, all sight. And it is possible, its great strength, is breaking into my body. I have faith in the night. One of the things that holds First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin together, that binds us together as a community, is that we have a common religious purpose. For this church, that common purpose is our mission. The congregation wrote it together, and the people who participate in our Sunday worship services say it together every Sunday so that we might more readily carry it with us throughout the week. Let's say it together now. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. All right. Ladies and gentlemen. Boys and girls and friends beyond the binary. I invite the children and anyone who would like the best view of the pictures to come up and read the story for all ages. 
My name is Kinsey. I use she, her pronouns, and I am the religious education coordinator. Hi. Today, we are going to read a book called The Shortest Day. Now, this has some big words, but don't worry. You'll understand. And this is what the grown-ups are going to talk about as well. So for a long time, hundreds and hundreds of years, people have celebrated the return of light. So we're going to read this book, The Shortest Day, by Susan Cooper, illustrated by Carson Ellis. The shortest day came, and the year died. And everywhere down the centuries of the snow-white world came people singing, dancing, to drive the dark away. They lighted candles in the winter trees. They hung their homes with evergreen. They burned beseeching fires all night long to keep the year alive. And when the New Year sunshine blazed awake, they shouted, reveling. Through all the frosty ages, you can hear them echoing behind us. Listen. All the long echoes sing the same delight this shortest day as promise wakens in the, sl- in the sleeping land. They carol, feast, give thanks, and dearly love their friends and hope for peace. And so do we, here, now, this year, and every year, welcome Yule, a celebration of the winter solstice and the Yuletide season. Our reading today is Winter Solstice by Rebecca Ann Parker. Reverend Parker is an ordained United Methodist and holds dual fellowship with the Unitarian Universalist Association. She was the first woman to serve as the permanent president of an accredited U.S. theological school at Star King School for Ministry, one of two UU seminaries in the United States. Perhaps, for a moment, the typewriters stop clicking, the wheels stop rolling, the computers desist from computing, and a hush will fall over the city. For an instant in the stillness, the chiming of the celestial spheres will be heard as earth hangs poised in the crystalline darkness, and then gracefully tilts. Let there be a season when holiness is heard and the splendor of living is revealed. Stunned to stillness by beauty, 
we remember who we are and why we are here. There are inexplicable mysteries. We are not alone. In the universe, there moves a wild one whose gestures alter Earth's axis towards love. In the immense darkness, everything spins with joy. The cosmos enfold us. We are caught in a web of stars, cradled in a swaying embrace, rocked by the holy night, babes of the universe. Let this be the time we wake to life like spring wakes in the moment of winter solstice. This is the time in our service when we center ourselves together. We breathe together. And breathing together, we sense one another's loving presence even across virtual space. Breathing in, Breathing out. Some of us meditate. Some of us speak with the God of our understanding. Some simply follow our breath to a deeper place inside. A place of greater wisdom. place where we sense our ineffable interconnectedness with all that is. That place where a spark of the divine resides within each of us. Breathing together, we enter into a time of sacred silence together remembering that we also hold sacred human sounds, including those of small children. Breathing in, breathing out, we now enter into that time of sacred silence together. I invite you now to light candles if you're so moved. Candles symbolizing sorrow, joy, remembrance, hope. Whatever may be upon your heart at this time. And as we light candles, I invite you to keep in your heart members of our community who are celebrating joys. Please also hold in your heart those who are ill or in sorrow. Let us remember that this season can be a time of difficulty and a more acute sense of loss for many among us.
as the music begins and we light our candles, let us hold the silence together throughout this meditative time. Now we light one last candle for all those for whom there is no one to light a candle. British author, journalist, and activist George Monbiot said of the December holidays, the Christians stole the winter solstice from the pagans, and capitalism stole it from the Christians. The winter solstice is December 22 this year, so I thought we might get an early start exploring what of our Christmas traditions are at least borrowed from these pre- and non-Christian solstice practices, and what spiritual wisdom we might find from those practices. The winter solstice is the shortest day of the year. It occurs in December in the northern hemisphere and June in the southern It's the day when the Earth's axis tilts to the point where one region of the globe is the farthest it gets from the sun. And various ancient traditions, rituals, and beliefs around this occurrence have developed throughout the world. Not surprisingly, many of these center around winter, fire and warmth, agriculture in anticipation of planting in the spring that will come, and the return of the light. After the shortest day of the year, the days will gradually get longer again. Cultures in the Northern Hemisphere especially observed that for three days, the sun would appear to be in the same place on the horizon, after which it would seem to be rising again. Hmm. After three days, the sun rises again. Sounds vaguely familiar. (laughs) 
As I was researching all of this, though, the most striking element to me was that these ancient spiritual observations of the winter solstice, this darkest day and longest night of the year, have also been about finding holiness in the darkness. But to get to that, let's start with some of what we in the North have borrowed from these oftentimes ancient winter solstice traditions. So let's start with the ancient Roman tradition of Saturnalia, a weeks-long celebration of their agricultural god, Saturn, leading up to the winter solstice. Saturnalia was a raucous and carnal time of heavy drinking and partying, The social order was reversed. The servants and slaves were not only temporarily given freedom, but could demand gifts from their masters. And from this, our Christmas tradition of drinking way too much and demanding presents was born. (laughs) Though, in all fairness, heavy drinking and exchanging gifts was also common to the winter solstice observations of many European cultures. I have to wonder if all that drinking was how they, too, coped with spending way too much time with extended family. (laughs) Now, I've been joking about this long tradition of drinking alcohol during this time of the year. There is a far from humorous side to it also, though. In the U.S., the days right after Christmas and New Year's holidays are when the highest number of folks seek treatment for alcohol withdrawal each year. And if you want an example of how capitalism has colonized Christmas, just think about how many liquor advertisements you see at this time of the year. Well, anyway, German, Nordic, and other people celebrated what has widely become combined into what we call Yuletide, when they would bring home large Yule logs and light one in to burn for several days of festing and festivities. The Germanic people would also roast a wild boar to appease their god of fertility. This is likely the source of our holiday ham tradition. They also hung stockings on their chimney to leave for their god Odin and the eight-legged horse he rode. Near the time of winter solstice, several of these so-called pagan societies would also gather mistletoe, which symbolized fertility, romance, peace, or joy, depending on the group. Under sprigs of mistletoe, some of them would engage in elaborate fertility rituals. Today, we leave it at a simple kiss probably because that extended family always seems to be around. (laughs) And for the Romans, holly was also a sacred plant connected with their god, Saturn. They would make holly wreaths to exchange as gifts for good luck. When Christianity was still forbidden within the Roman Empire, early Christians avoided detection by hanging holly wreaths around their homes to make it look like they were celebrating Saturnalia. Our Christmas caroling tradition likely comes from the Anglo-Saxon winter wassailing celebration, which involved, you guessed it, drinking lots of an alcohol-based traditional wassail beverage and going door-to-door singing to the neighbors to wish them good health and run away evil spirits. 
This was also sometimes done in fruit orchards, also to banish evil spirits and to wish for a good harvest. Well, one last example among far more than we can cover today is our perhaps most famous symbol of the Christmas season, the Christmas tree. During the time near winter solstice, Romans hung small metal ornaments on trees around their homes representing their gods. Other cultures would decorate trees with fruits and candles, either outside or after bringing the trees into their homes. The bringing in of evergreens likely symbolized new or even eternal life in the midst of the cold and dark of winter. And that brings me back to this idea that these winter solstice practices, yes, were rituals about holding on to life and the return of the sun and the light. As importantly, though, they were also about not so much driving away the dark, but of embracing being in the dark. The candles... The fires, the evergreens, the associated celebrations and rituals and singing and gift-giving were also about finding a way through, even rejoicing in the darkness. Finding the holy in the nighttime. And I think... This is a vital concept that has too often gotten lost to us in modern times. We have come to celebrate that which is good only with light and white and bright and to associate darkness with that which is bad and painful and evil. And this can damage us spiritually. It leads us to value only the so-called bright emotions like joy and love and avoid the dark emotions like sorrow and grief. And yet we need all these emotions and more to be psychologically healthy sometimes. And these connotations, this language has found its way into racist tropes involving lighter-complected skin versus darker. Retired Unitarian Universalist religious educator Jackie James captured all this when she wrote, Blackmail, Blacklist, Black Mark, Black Monday, Black Mood, Black Hearted, Black Plague, Black Mass, Black Market. Good guys wear white, bad guys wear black. Angels and brides wear white. Devil's food cake is chocolate. Angel food cake is white. We shape language and we are shaped by it. In our culture, white is esteemed. At the same time, black is evil, wicked, gloomy, depressing, angry, sullen. Ascribing negative and positive values to black and white enhances the institutionalization of this culture's racism. And this 
valuing of the light and shunning of the dark has even further theological implications. Author, Episcopal Episcopal priest, and spiritual teacher Barbara, Barbara Taylor Brown addressed these in her book on the subject, Learning to Walk in the Dark. She writes, At the theological level, however, this language creates all sorts of problems. It divides every day into two, pitting the light part against the dark part. It tucks all the sinister stuff into the dark part, identifying God with the sunny part and leaving you to deal with the rest on your own time. It implies things about dark-skinned people and sight-impaired people that are not true. Worst of all, it offers people of faith a giant closet in which they can store everything that threatens or frightens them without thinking too much about those things. But we need both the dark and the light. After all, the seed germinates in the soil. The caterpillar goes through metamorphosis into a butterfly in the darkness of the chrysalis. We initially develop within the darkness of the womb. And in fact, it may be in the darkness that we connect most deeply with the divine. Or if you prefer, with a sense of awe and mystery within which we're given an ineffable awareness that we are an integral part of something much greater than ourselves. The Uzbek have a concept of the divine dark, the darkness from which all things come, the darkness from when the world was first made, when it was like a gentle night, peaceful, quiet, pitch black. The night is when creation started, and the night is when you're closest to sensing what it was like at the very beginning of the world. And this idea of the divine darkness has begun to emerge within Christian and other theologies also. We often close our eyes to pray or meditate, perhaps as a way to enter into the darkness where a sense of the sacred may more easily be found. In the Bible, Genesis describes how God created the world not from light, but from the darkness. Exodus talks about how the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. The Psalms quote God talking about darkness. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. These are just a few examples. Likewise, we've come to associate being in the dark with a lack of knowing. 
Yet religious mystics speak of the dark night of the soul, that we must experience unknowing, the absence of God, in order to gain even a minute sense of a divine presence so vast and never fully comprehensible. We experience the holy in the mystery. I love this time of the year because it's this time of the year when I experience the holy at night. When we turn off all the lights except those on the Christmas tree, and sometimes we light the fireplace if it's cold enough, which in Texas is about 60 degrees or less. And there in those yuletide shadows, it's just me and Wayne and our two pups. And the Christmas lights and the fire aren't there to push out the darkness in the night. They're just there to let us settle into their mysterious magic. Here's another example. If you've never experienced a total eclipse of the sun, go out to the Texas Central, Central Texas Hill Country this coming April 8th when one will occur in our area. There's a brief moment of magical darkness at the height of such an eclipse that can truly touch our hearts with a sense of the sacred vastness of this universe of which we are a part. In her book, Barbara Taylor Brown describes research that's been done where they asked volunteers to live without artificial light in order to replicate the amount of time our ancestors would have lived in relative darkness. They were exploring sleep patterns in such a setting. Well, at first, the volunteers slept 11 hours at a time rather than about eight maybe catching up on sleep after leaving the pace of the modern world and the influence of artificial light. Soon, though, they began to sleep about eight hours again, but not consecutively. They slept a total of around eight hours, but in separate segments of a few hours each. What surprised the researchers the most, though, was what happened between those sleep segments. Between sleeping, the research participants would sometimes enter into this resting state for about a couple of hours, a state in which they were neither actively awake nor soundly asleep. And their body chemistry and brainwaves during such altered consciousness were very much like that of people in deep states of meditation or prayer. The director of the study said that it was like finding a fossil of human consciousness, a state of awareness that had largely withered away. Perhaps by banishing the darkness we have also lost a part of ourselves that quite naturally connected with the spiritual. Maybe we have forgotten that the darkness is sacred. The nights are holy. 
Oh, by the way, I titled this service O Holy Night after the Christmas hymn with the same title. And in researching that, I discovered that the hymn was originally written in 1843 by a French poet named Placide Capot. When it was later discovered that Capot was an atheist with strongly anti-cleric views, the Catholic Church banned the hymn for a while. Oh, and O Holy Night was translated into English by American Unitarian and Transcendentalist minister John Dwight, who lived in a commune and was a music critic. Somehow all that makes O Holy Night even holier to me. Maybe I have a dark sense of humor. As we approach the winter solstice this year, May we remember that we must travel far from our centers of artificial light in order for it to be dark enough to be able to see the stars in the heavens at night. May we reverence the darkness. May we make holy the night. Amen. Please join me in the words for extinguishing our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Our benediction today comes from the words of author and naturalist Henry Beston. Learn to reverence night and to put away the vulgar fear of it. For with the banishment of night, there vanishes as well a religious emotion, a poetic mood which gives depth to the adventure of humanity. For a moment of night... We have a glimpse of ourselves and of our world islanded in its stream of stars. Pilgrims of mortality voyaging between horizons across eternal seas of space and time. May the congregation say amen Amen. and blessed be. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.